This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading this episode of In Our Time. There's a reading list to go with it on our website and you can get news about our programmes if you follow us on Twitter at BBC In Our Time. I hope you enjoyed the programmes. Hello. In 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville sailed from France to America to learn how its democracy worked and therefore what his own country might expect when inevitably, as he saw it, democracy spread there. An aristocrat, he was worried that American democracy valued equality more than liberty, that the majority could tyrannise the minority once a vote had been won and that the people could easily elect a despotic, charismatic leader who would undermine democracy. In 1835, Tocqueville's report, Democracy in America, was published, and with this he hoped that France could avoid the same traps as it moved falteringly onwards from monarchy and aristocracy after Revolution and Napoleon. With me to discuss Tocqueville's Democracy in America are Robert Gilday, Professor of Modern History at the University of Oxford, Susan Mary Grant, Professor of American History at Newcastle University, and Jeremy Jennings, Professor of Political Theory and Head of the School of Politics and Economics at King's College London. Robert Gilday, who was Alexis de Tocqueville? Well, as you say, uh, Tocqueville was a French noble. Uh, he could trace his ancestry back to uh, William the Conqueror, but he was a man caught between two worlds, the world of the Ancien Régime <coughs> before 1789 and, and the French Revolution, the Ancien Régime was a regime based on monarchy, the Catholic Church and the nobility, but all that was swept away by the French Revolution and Tocqueville's parents both survived, having their heads chopped off, but many of their families did not. And as a result, Tocqueville became obsessed with the idea of how France could establish a regime which combined liberty and equality. The revolution of 1789 established liberty, but that then that degraded into the egalitarian republic and the terror then then you had napoleon who established equality before the law but despotism and then in 1815 the restored monarchy brought back some liberty but also inequality and he was uh, he and he, many of the people around in the, in the in the 1820s he himself was a young magistrate uh, at the court at, at versailles were wondering about how how france and other countries could combine liberty and and equality and one of the things they thought about was with regimes, you couldn't just go from one regime to another, monarchy to empire to republic, without thinking about the social and cultural background, that the social and cultural uh, background of a society determined what you could have. So he said it's impossible for France to go back to absolute monarchy uh, in, in 1815 because society had become much more democratic, there was much more social equality. And he uh, this, this was made very clear by the 1830 revolution, which overthrew the old monarchy once again. And you might have thought that Tocqueville would have said, OK, you know, th we've now got a sort of bourgeois monarchy. The king, the, the new king, Louis Philippe, went around with, a, with an umbrella. Uh, the middle classes were in power. You might have thought, well, this was a good, a good solution. But unfortunately, Tocqueville was, part of, was loyal to the old monarchy and he could see that his career was going to go nowhere. And so he sort of took a step back and thought about a sabbatical. I mean, we could say, see it as a sort of PhD that he th thought he was going to do on democracy in America. And the idea was, I suppose, that America was seen as the cradle, the cradle, the laboratory of democracy. And if you if you studied democracy in America, you could see what was going to happen uh, in France and in Europe uh, later down the line. Where did he get the information he had, as you imply, he had some information on America? Well, there was a lot of debate. There was a lot of debate about America in this period and a lot of discussion about about where it could, where, where it might go. And... Um, 
I mean, I think there were different views about about what America would look like. I mean, there were, for example, Lafayette, who was the great hero of the American Revolution, had had toured America uh, in the 1820s and 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 had had stories about how the Americans combined liberty uh, with slavery. Um, but uh, so Tocqueville, with, with a young friend of his, took took leave of absence from from France, and their their um, ostensible project for which they had permission, was to do a study of prison reform in America. But his real goal, his real goal was, as I say, to write this, this PhD on, on, on American democracy. Is there anything else in his background that you haven't mentioned that might lead us to understand why he was, <clears throat> why he was so singularly interested in democracy? Well, I do think, I do think it was this, this idea that France was seen to be unable to construct a regime there was all this regime change it goes it goes from monarchy to empire to uh, to from monarchy to republic to empire there's all this regime change there's all this blood there, there, there there's the there's the there's the there's the terror of 1793 which nearly kills his parents there's there's the white terror in 1815 which which takes it out on the revolutionists and supporters on opponents it's a very violent society and i suppose he thought he was a bit of a sociologist before his time and he he and a lot of people around in the 1820s are debating you know the what the 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 framework of what what we're seeing is the growth of what they call equality of conditions. So we're living we're living in a society which is more and more equal, and we have to find a political solution uh, which is in tune with that growing equality, but which at the same time can preserve liberty. Thank you very much, Susan Mary Grant. What changes was America undergoing when Tocqueville arrived there, eighteen thirty-one? Well, in eighteen thirty-one, I mean America is very much on the cusp of a new kind of age. So we've had the election of Andrew Jackson in 1828, and Jackson was very much the start of a new kind of politics, a new kind of modernity, I suppose, in America. It was the beginning of what is called the second-party system. There had been a first-party system that had kind of collapsed, federalists, and they had eventually just... They hadn't won for so long. It was a national Republican Party that had won six consecutive elections. And so the federalists basically just disappeared off the scene. But when Jackson is elected, the um, his supporters go on to form a new democratic party so it's the start of a new you know a new party system a second party system but also jackson i mean america with jackson was on the verge of a new kind of a new kind of approach all the presidents before jackson had come from either what's called the virginia dynasty so you had Jefferson, Washington, that's in the wrong order, Washington, Jefferson. Um, you had you know, many, Monroe and um, Madison, you had Adams, he'd come from Massachusetts. So there was this kind of political elite that Jackson was not part of, but this political elite had dominated America. And of course, they all had ties, they either were or related to or had served with the founding fathers. Some of them had served in the revolution. And so by 1831, you know, that generation is quitting the stage. And so you have this development of a new kind of politics because Jackson had tried to get elected in 1824 and he had failed. This was an election where, uh, in fact, he'd won the popular vote, but not enough of it. So the decision was thrown into the House of Representatives for the first time. Um, eventually, the, the presidency went to, to John Quincy Adams and the, the charge was this was a corrupt bargain 
and Jackson basically went back to his house in Tennessee and fumed for a while and then tried again in 1828. So that election really was a turning point, not just a new political um, individual on the scene, you know, a self-made man, a military hero. He didn't have all the kind of educational background, you know, of the Virginia elite and, and the Adamses, who, of course, were very What's famous. What's the influence of this man felt immediately? I mean... You're talking about 28. Mm. Uh, our man gets there in 31, that's three mm. years. Had the Jackson influence worked through by then? Was Oh, totally. So Dockville was able to see yes. that the America he saw was not the America he made led to believe existed when he set off. It was very much an America that was in the cusp of change. I mean, there were so many and other... What were the main peaks happening. of change? Well, there was there was the politics, but then of course in 1830, various you know events. In 1831, of course, you have the Nat Turner uprising in Virginia, when you know a slave preacher um, you know rebels, um, kills many women and children in an attempt to make a stand against slavery. Obviously, you have the beginnings of the publication of the Liberator, which is the anti-slavery you know newspaper. Um, in 1832 is the very last time that in Virginia they will discuss whether or not they're going to keep slavery. So, you know, 1830 is sort of transition year in many ways for the United States. It's moving into, you know, the old political generation are, as I say, leaving the scene. You're moving into a new world with more immigrants, with more um, reform upheaval, abolition is becoming a much more powerful force. And so Tocqueville, I think, would he would definitely have sensed that. And also the people he was talking to would have told him you know, all about it and he would have got their perspective and what was happening to their country. But was he seeing, briefly, was he seeing in play the sort of democracy he was expecting to see? He did report in it. And was the, what he reported on, what he'd been expecting, what did he have to make make do with, not make do not make it up as he went along, but take account of what was going, changing every six months or so. I think he tried to, but I think he failed to. I think that was part of the problem. I think that he listened to the people who were, you know, had a particular agenda. And so, for example, he totally misunderstood what he was seeing in Andrew Jackson. He did not realise what a powerful president he was actually looking at. He, he thought democracy was all about checks and balances, the bicameral legislature. This was all going to work really well. And he fails to realise the politics of personality, the so-called age of the common man that Jackson had ushered in. Jeremy Jennings, what was Europe's general view of America at that time? Basically, one way of looking at America is, <coughs> is that it had abandoned Europe. Uh, a lot of the people in Europe had said, we don't like you anymore, we're going to live in America. Uh, Just a many, many fine British persons went. Okay. Just a couple of things. First of all, you know, um, Tocqueville actually met Jackson and uh, briefly, and he was not impressed by Jackson at all. Mm. Second thing is, I don't think that Tocqueville actually knew much about America before he left. Mm. He did the sort of thing that we do. You know, when we're going, we go into a conference somewhere and we get on the plane, do a quick bit of reading. Well, he did the same thing. He gets on board boat and starts reading about America when he's on board boat and also starts mm. to try and improve his English. His English isn't very good. That didn't help his um, ability to understand America because often he, there are lots of little stories where he completely misunderstands what's being said to him and turns upon the wrong day and, that, and those sorts of things. So I think he... And going to America, it was, it was almost like now, sort of almost like going to the moon. People, you know, it was, it was a long, long journey. Nevertheless, he got there. And he, what was the general European view of America before? He gets there. He must have carried some European views. And one must have been, this is a long way away. These are people who had left Europe from different countries and offered a lot of very good people to be up here well, for good reasons. I don't think there was a general view. There were a whole series of different views. One was the sort of America's a philosophical paradise, the sort of yeoman republicans of virtue, simplicity and, and 
so on. Another was America of the Great Wilderness, which Toffel quite clearly did have because his, his cousin was Chateaubriand, and Chateaubriand had been very instrumental in, the, in fabricating the noble savage myth and so on. Um, there was also the... Um, which was very, very prevalent, which which you see actually do see in Tocqueville, the notion of Americans as a bunch of Philistines, um, uncultured and so on, and Tocqueville certainly repeats that view. Um, and the other thing which um, was, was very important in the European imagination was, 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 of course, slavery. And for all the fact that people said, you know, this is, you know, they're building the world anew. Yes, they're building the world anew, but with slavery. And this is one of the issues which people time and time again had to come back to. How can we explain, how can we explain this? The other thing is, is to say one of the big debates really was, um, is this country so different from us? It's now become your point as it sort of casts adrift. Is it now so different from us that it's, it would be impossible for us to learn anything about, you know, of, of, use, of use to us? And some people said no. Tocqueville said no. He thought there were things we could learn. But many people just thought it was such a different civilization from ours that, that really it was, it was, I mean, no, there was nothing we could learn. What were, <clears throat> what were the main faults in the French system as it was when Tocqueville was there, say, 1831, that he wanted to, he thought he could remedy by going to America? Well, I don't, I don't really think that's what, what, what he was doing. He's, he's quite clear that he says that when, when I was in America, France was always in my thoughts. I think it goes back to what Robert was saying. There's just been a, re there's been a revolution in 1830, a relatively peaceful one. And the thing that Tocqueville concludes from that is that the movement towards democracy is now unstoppable. It's a providential fact. We've seen the first signs of that in France. It will come not necessarily in American form, but it will come to Europe. It will come to the, all of Europe. It's fascinated by what incident of what's going on in England at the time, which is where there's big changes going on. So it's not just France, it's England as well. So what we've got to do, what, what, we, what we have to do with America is learn as much as we can from it to in, in order to inform the debates which we will inevitably have about democracy here in France and here in Europe. So I don't think it's, much, it's not so much that there are faults in the French system, it's just that what he's got in his head is that, like it or not, we are now on the way to democracy. It will come. We've got to learn about it, understand it, and make the best job we can of it. And America's the great reservoir of research for this. At the time, America, remember that America seems to have answered one of the big questions. In standard sort of history of political thought, you cannot have a republic in a big state. America, through you know through the Constitution, has solved that problem. It seems to indicate you can have a large state which will be democratic, and that's absolutely crucial. That's why America, for a you could, for a political scientist, was a really interesting test case. Robert Gilday, um, Tocqueville found much to admire in America, but much to um, much concerned him. He was concerned about what equality in America might lead to. Can you discuss that? Yes, well, he, I think he was, he was uh, he, yeah, as you say, he saw lots of good things. He was fascinated by the township system, by federal government, uh, by the role of the judiciary. But he did, he did see in political terms that if you have uh, everyone having the vote and, 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 and the sovereignty of the people, he was worried about, the, the, for example, the quality of political representatives that you get. He was worried that they wouldn't elect the best people. He was also worried that uh, the general interest would not be regarded. The, 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 the interest of the majority would, would, take, would take precedence. Um, and I think it also in, in material terms, he was fascinated by 
again, what he called the equality conditions, which doesn't mean complete social levelling. I think it means the idea that there's a kind of... America is basically middle class. You have, you know, you have commercial farmers, you have shopkeepers, you have business people, uh, you know, all of whom have some property, or most of whom have some property, most of whom have some education. There's a quite a good deal of social mobility. Uh, and this, uh, but this, he said, this engenders a kind of sameness, a kind of a, a, a uniformity, which 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 he didn't like. And I think the other thing that he was worried about, uh, uh, Jeremy has said that you know that 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 America had solved the problem of having a having a, a large state that was a republic. But the other the other sort of basic ingrained idea that people had from the 18th century and the idea of the republic and also from from ancient republics was that republics were based on virtue virtue not in the sense of private virtue but public virtue this this idea that in a republic people had to be public spirited committed to the to the to the common wheel uh, dedicated to the public good and this was this was very clear in the, for example in the, in the french revolution but in in america tocqueville was concerned that there wasn't this this public virtue that there was a kind of uh, there was a kind of individualism that people seemed to be just looking after themselves. People seemed to be very happy in their own families and their own little worlds without going out to get to get involved in politics, apart from the sort of mania of elections. And he was also worried about their sort of materialism that they were just out to you know to because there was this social mobility and there was the open frontier and there was lots of possibilities. And uh, and and you know not a great deal of educational opportunities that that people were going to just people just you know made money and were and were materialistic so that that, that was that was the downside of of democracy for him. Susan Mary Grant, um, to what uh, extent um, Roberts alluded to this, but to what extent were Tocqueville's ideas influenced by the places he went to in America? Well, just following up from from Robert's point, I think Tocqueville saw a very clear distinction between the North and the South, between the lands of freedom and the land of slavery. Because, of course, by the 1830s, there were a a handful of slaves still in the Northern states, but mostly they'd been sold South, because that's how caring Northerners were. And he saw a clear distinction, I think. So partly it's where he went. He mainly, you know, he did most of his research for the prison book that was alluded to at the beginning in New York, and he went to Boston. He even went to Canada, where just going to your point about how he didn't really know about America, he expresses um, surprise because he's about to get into a boat and this Native American comes up to him and says, oh, be careful, you you know, this is quite dangerous. I'm current here. And he's speaking perfect French. And he said, I had no idea that there were still French-speaking people in North America. So he didn't really know what he was going to. So, you know, he spends a lot of time in the north, the northeast. He does go across. He goes. To, he does go to Albany. He doesn't spend that much time in the south. And I think partly that was deliberate because his travelling companion, Gustave de Beaumont, was going to be writing a book about slavery. But it leads him into some strange assumptions. <coughs> At one point he says, everybody, there's nobody in the South, no white person in the South, who doesn't own a slave, which of course just wasn't true at all. Slaveholding was very much, not just an elite, but there was a huge number of white Southerners who didn't own slaves. So he misunderstood what he was seeing there. And you know, going to Robert's point, he very much saw you know, the Ohio was a dividing line and on one side everything was industrious. It was a traditional Jeffersonian idea that slavery, you know, 
weakens the society, weakens its population. So Tocqueville draws this comparison between on one side of the Ohio, the crops are thriving, the people are laughing and singing and going about their business. And on the slavery side in Kentucky, it's just misery and slave coffles. So... A lot of this, though, I think will come from the people that he's been talking to. I think it's the people he spoke to, the Whigs that he spoke to, that influenced him more than perhaps the places that he went to. Because I'm not really sure he saw what was in front of him sometimes. Indeed, Jeremy Jennings, the, the uh, tyranny of the majority is one of the phrases that has leapt out of the, his book and, and, and used ever since. Um, what did he mean by that and what evidence did he have that that might be a danger? Well, what he meant by it, what he was struck, <coughs> obviously, that, that America was um, democratic in the sense of, 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 of um, adult white males um, had the vote. And he realised that that gave the majority um, an enormous power if it chose to use it in, 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 in certain different ways. Now, I think he accepts that it's perfectly proper that the majority should govern. What are the, da- what are the dangers of the tyranny of the majority? Well, they come partly from the nature of American society, which, is, which he sees as, as determined by equality of conditions and so on. So his worry is about the American people, as, as Robert has said, that they're, they're materialistic. So the tendency towards mediocrity and, and so I on. Yeah. <coughs> is he saying they're much more materialistic than French people that he yes. knows very well? Yes. In yes, what way? Why, how are they more well, materialistic when, than French people? Uh, well, it is in, uh, when he gets there, there's a marvellous letter he writes. He's, he's, been only, he's been there for a very short period of time. He's just left New York. He writes this marvellous letter about, about American society. And, and, and he says, I've never, been, I've never been to a place like this before. This is quite an astonishing place. What holds it together? <laughs> what holds it together is the fact that Americans want to make money. And, they, and the other thing is their self-interest. And he's never seen, I've never seen anything like this before because, as Robert said, previous, and the republics have been held together by virtue. This is not being held together by virtue. It's being held together by the desire to make money and the pursuit of self-interest. Now, he's, he's therefore, his concern is if that becomes, in a sense, writ large through the will of the majority, that majority, in a sense, can impose that. And you do it in various ways. Most obviously... It, it can produce bad government again, as Robert has, has, has alluded to. His concern is, he, at one point he says something to the effect that while Americans disagree on something, conversation, discussion will flourish. Once they've made up their mind, be, the majority will silence all opinions. So it's beginning that fear about the power of public opinion. The other thing about the majority he really worries about, again, which has been alluded to by uh, already, is, is the concern... In a country which is held together by a desire to make money, by self-interest, the primary concern will be a desire for comfort, material well-being. And the majority will impose that, that desire, at the expense of liberty. They will place well-being before liberty. And if there's one thing Tocqueville stands for, it's he should always place liberty above other considerations. In what way, though, Robert? Is he saying that the tyranny majority... <coughs> is so different from the tyranny of many minorities that have disfigured or figured Europe for centuries, including his own country. Why is the, the, the tyranny of the majority so different from the tyranny of minorities that he's seen in France even in his own lifetime? I suppose, in a way, because it's sort of bottom-up tyranny. I mean, there are plenty of, plenty of examples of, 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 of monarchies and despotisms and uh, elites persecuting persecuting religious minorities but he would say that this is this is a bottom-up tyranny uh you know in, in a sense it's not it's not i mean he is worried about um 
American the American presidency becoming a bit of a, a bit of a despotism. But his main concern is is, is bottom up Germany. So if you if you have everyone who's kind of more or less the same socially, more or less the same intellectually, uh, and there's a predominance of of of, of Protestantism. Um, the the danger I think he felt is, is that these people will impose their 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 views, and he does he does give examples of uh, you know Catholic minorities uh, being beaten up. What he doesn't do so much, and you think he might have said a bit more about this, is is uh, is, is 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 racial uh, persecution, the persecution of of black minorities. He, he does talk about the way in which he says in the in the north it is possible, it is it is legal for a white man to marry a black woman, but he says if if he if if he does that, you know he's completely lost his honour. Uh, so I'm not sure whether he talks about lynching, but. Um, I, I think I think what he worries about is 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 the bottom up imp- imposition of conformity by the mass of the people on small minorities, and this is a theme that's also taken up by John Stuart Mill, for example, in in Britain at the same time. John Stuart Mill writes very positive reviews of 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 both volumes of of Democracy in America, um, but I think it's this idea that some people like Tocqueville and Mill were, saw themselves as kind of intellectuals, as aristocrats, as as people who had their special you know, very special gifts, intellectual uh, gifts, and he and and I think their their one of their concerns was that was if you like the sort of philistine mass would overrule uh, intellectuals and educated, slightly sort of um, uh, dare I say effeminate minds like 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 theirs. And one of the things he says, for example, he says there are no there are no literary people. There's no originality. There's no genius in America. He says, and w- you know when you think about this, you know you think about you know. Waldo Emerson or or Edgar Allan Poe or or Herman Melville, you think, why, where did they get this idea that there were no inventive, creative minds in America? But that's what he's worried about. Yeah, but sorry, can I come to you and then back to you? Yeah, the the idea though that the the majority is imposed by, in effect, a despot comes into play as well. That that this system, uh, to take it further from from where Robert was saying, will throw up a despot. Mm. What do you think of that? A charismatic despot, popular choice despot. I don't think Tocqueville actually quite understood that. I think that was the fear when Andrew Jackson was elected. I mean, many people, his, his opponents called him, you know, King Andrew, and there was this idea of mob rule because he quite deliberately pitched himself at the masses. And again, this is this new this new idea in politics that somehow you spoke for the people, which sounds a little bit odd in an American context because sure, that's what the Republic was all set up for. But because it had been dominated by this Virginia dynasty, it was not really seen to reflect the people. So, you know, with Jackson, this was seen to be this new era of populism where the people would have a voice and I think that was a risk that they would throw up a president who was you know, yes not particularly popular with the elites but I don't think Tocqueville realised that that's what Jackson was because as we've heard he did meet him, he was unimpressed he didn't understand how the the second party system, the emergence of political parties, was going to weaken the presidency and it was going to require a strong man like Jackson and then in the future Lincoln and then perhaps arguably Roosevelt, you know, really strong individuals who would be able to control that office and not be swamped by it. But, you know, Jackson very much positioned himself as this kind of man of the people, this military hero, but I don't think Tocqueville saw quite what Jackson was. I think you asked the question, what's in sense, what's, what was new about this? And uh, I mean, Writers of a liberal disposition, we, 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 we could say, historically we're always concerned about the nature of despotism. But despotism, tradition would, would be described as ruled by fear and the rule by one person. That's, that's where you get in Montesquieu. 
what's new here? It's not rule. It's not fear. It's public opinion that it, that it, that is doing the work, and it's not one person. It's the mass of the people, and I think Toffield really is just about the first person to identify this as a very very serious threat to liberty. In the past, it's always been keep the monarch under control and so on, and now for the first time, we've got the people which in the face of it is a good thing. Of course the people should rule, but what Tocqueville was trying to say is but be very careful because within the rule of the people, there's a new danger about which we have to be very, very concerned, and that is a power of public opinion. And once public opinion comes into play, you're silenced. As, as, as Robert said, you, know, you might wish to marry an African-American and so on. It might be perfectly legal, but you can't because the weight of public opinion will deter you from doing so. So he is identifying something very, very new upon which later writers like John Stuart Mill were to build. What, might, what did you think might strengthen the uh, American, American democracy against this? Well, that, in a way, that's the great Tocquevillian project. This is the nature of democracies that I'm describing to you. We have to learn to live with it. How can, how can we live with it? Well... The thing that the Americans loved about the book was that, of course, Tocqueville gave a description of a whole series of mechanisms in, in the American Constitution which would protect liberty, things like judicial review, um, the decentralization of power, and so on. So there, there were, there He was very were, taken with that. Very, very taken with that. The last thing that Tocqueville ever wrote in his life was actually an article about, about judicial review in America. He was very, very interested in that idea. So there were institutional, federal, basically federalism, so, you know, the classic liberal argument of dividing up power. That's, 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 the, that's the institutional side of it. But the thing that Tocqueville identified that he thought was really interesting about America was that there, there were other factors in American society which would militate against this, this despotism. One was religion, and that's very, that's very interesting thing to say about religion. And the other one was what he called the sort of associational life, and that's another way in which Tocqueville has been very, very important subsequently. Americans live and thrive through associations and that teaches them the habits of liberty. Religion stops people uh, religion stops people doing nasty things. Yeah, just to pick up, I mean, I think I think as Jeremy said, there were, there were, there were two ways in which he thought he, the, the system could be uh, improved or some of the dangers mitigated. One, Some of them were institutional uh, but some were to do with what, what he called mœurs or mores or Customs, or I suppose what we would call culture, and it's very interesting that he has. A, he, when he looks at, you know, we said that on the downside you have individualism uh, and materialism, but he, he then goes through certain character traits that he thinks the Americans has, have, which kind of mitigate that. So he says, for example, the Americans have a kind of open, uh, honest, you know, relationship with each other. He says they are, you know, they may be materialistic, but they're also generous and 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 philanthropic. And they're into mutual aid, um, as Jeremy said. They they're, they're they're religious, and whereas in whereas in Europe, religion was often connected to the dominance of a particular religion and persecution of religious minorities. In in America, religion was founded on liberty. People, a lot of people came to America to flee religious persecution and to set up. So he points out that freedom and religion are are very much connected. One thing he doesn't really talk about so much is is education 
uh, you, you might think he'd say more about how education can help with, with the construction of liberty. And he's also interested in the, in the role of, of women in the United States. He says that, you know, women in the United States are much less under sort of patriarchal control. They're much more confident. They're much more outward going. They're much they're protected by the law in matters of rape. So he says that I think the influence of women is also quite important in America. Susan, can you contrast his treatment of slavery and his treatment of Native Americans, which seems rather odd from our perspective now? Yeah, I mean, in some respects, Tocqueville, you, you, can, you can excuse him away and say he was a man of his time, but fundamentally, he has this Aristotelian idea about you know, the noble savage, which we've referred to before. And so fundamentally, and he never really spells it out, what he's talking about is all the things that Robert was saying. Americans associate, they form societies. One of the societies, of course, they form is a colonisation society in an attempt to get African-Americans to move back to Liberia. And that so much of what stabilises white society and what stabilises this new democracy, what stabilises a country of immigrants who don't know each other is, you know, racial division, whether it's African-Americans who are slaves or Native Americans. Native Americans, he has this enlightenment idea of the noble savage, but he fundamentally sees them as that they're going to die out. And, of course, again, he, he comes to America... And the presence of Andrew Jackson, who was no great friend of the Native American, but we mustn't exaggerate that. Jackson gets um, I mean, a lot of stick for this, quite rightly, but every president since Washington had been fussing about what to do with Native Americans because they wanted the land. So Jackson's name is forever associated with the Trail of Tears that moved the, the Cherokee you know, to Indian, Indian land, which is now Oklahoma, away from, away from Georgia. But um, Tocqueville says this is natural, it's normal, this is what's going to happen. These people cannot assimilate, and the whites and Native Americans cannot assimilate together. And it is the... Did he have an explanation for the fact that they could not assimilate together? Yes, he was quite quite bad about this. I mean, he basically said Native Americans... Phraseology was basically he said they were too proud. He basically drew a distinction between African Americans who were slaves and Native Americans. African Americans were too servile, and according to Tocqueville, certainly towards the end of the first volume of Democracy in America, he waxes quite lyrical about the civility and how happy they are. I mean, he virtually portrays them as singing spirituals in the fields. So they're too subservient to stand up for themselves. And Native Americans are too proud to see that the white man's way is best. So he basically describes them as going off in almost a huff into the woods to die. It's a really strange juxtaposition. So do you think he was wrong on both counts? Well, yes, of course, I think he was. I think is, you see this perhaps, you know, we're talking about democracy in America, but of course, Tocqueville, he goes back to France and then he gets involved with, um, it was 1830, France invades Algeria and he gets involved in that and he, you know, he visits and he writes about that and it's, he's very harsh about what's going to happen to the Arab population and he sees no possibility there of assimilation either and you can track that right back to what he says about Native Americans and democracy in America it's the same idea that you have two, you know, oil and water will not mix and that was basically his rather strange argument, despite the fact as I said earlier, he had met this fluent French-speaking Native American in Canada with whom he was very, very impressed but you know, in the round, he just thought the role of the Native American was to fade from the scene, the role of the African American was to be enslaved, and the role of the white man was to eventually, you know, stabilise this marvellous republic. Jeremy, is there anything anything you want to develop from that about things which we might say Tocqueville got... He got a lot right, but Tocqueville got wrong. 
just on just on the on the, on the Native Americans, because he did actually see one tribe being forcibly moved, which 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 was a horrid sight for him at the time. Um, I mean, first of all, the book was the book was published to immediate acclaim. Everyone thought this was this was the greatest book. It was the first volume. Eighteen thirty-five, yeah. eighteen forty was less successful. But eighteen thirty-five, immediate acclaim. This was by general agreement the best book that had ever been written about the United, the United States. Incidentally, he, he the first sentence of, of was going to be this is not a travelogue, and I think the danger is we treat it as a travelogue. It was not a travelogue. It's an analysis of democracy in America, of democracy in America. What, what, but at the time, people said, yes, this is a great book, but it but did get certain things wrong, and um, we've been actually addressing some of those things. The g- general view of Americans who thought that it was a marvellous book was that he had certainly overestimated the power of the tyranny of the majority, and he'd got it wrong primarily because he'd been there at the time of Jackson. Um, there, another view was that, um, which is one of his key ideas of the equality of conditions, that he'd overestimated the, the extent of the equality of conditions in America, therefore he'd been blind to the dangers of plutocracy in, in America, as has already been mentioned, that he actually fundamentally misconceived the American political system, role of parties, and things like that. Likewise, this stuff about Americans being Philistines, no great literature, precisely at the point where America is producing great literature. So he, get, he gets that wrong as well. So at which, which point you might say, well, let's just throw the book in, 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 into, the, into the rubbish bin. Now, the reason we don't do that is because, of course, it is actually a very, very good book about what we would now describe as the pathologies of democracy. And that, remember, is his subject. His subject is not Native Americans. It's not slavery. That's in one big chapter... But that's not his subject. His subject is democracy in America. And it's what he has to say about democracy in America, or the nature of democracy, that in a sense is the reason why we still read the book. Robert, Robert Gilday, did he, did he or others apply what he learned in America when he got back to France? Yes, I mean, in a way, um, in a way he did. I mean, so he, you know, he, went, he went to America to study democracy and... and and you'd think that when he got back to France, he would be able to apply some of these these ideas quite uh, uh, quite well. Uh, but what happens? The big thing that happens when he after he gets back uh, is a, the eighteen forty eight revolution in France, which does uh, bring uh, democracy to France. And there is a wonderful moment where he talks about you know so everyone 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 has got all males have got the vote down to the lowest peasant, and he's a, he's a landowner, a seigneur in Normandy, and he and he goes. He goes with his his peasant farmers to the polling station, and it's about a five-mile walk. And he says, I didn't put myself at the head because this is an democracy. They were in alphabetical order, and I put myself uh, under uh, under T towards the back. And then he said, well, we did get to this grassy knoll, and I did feel that I had to make a speech to them. So I gave a speech, and I said, you know, when you get to the town to vote, make sure you vote first and go to the pub later. And... uh, and and, to, and that seemed to be a kind of moment of sort of Tory democracy, where you know the landing the landed gentleman, you know takes takes his uh, his faithful peasants to the polling station, and everything is going to work out fr- fine. But I think the trouble is with France, democracy always came with the French Revolution, the Republic, and the Napoleonic regime. And so, for example, he gets when he gets elected to the National Assembly, uh, is, is, uh, which convenes in the sort of spring of of eighteen forty eight. 15th of May, the Assembly is is invaded by a bunch of Paris radicals who are demanding various things, including an army to go to Poland to support the Poles against the Russians and the Germans. Um, that terrifies him. He sort of hides behind a bench. Uh, and then, of course, in, 1840, in, in June of 1848, you have uh, the so-called June days. I mean, so A lot of unemployment in Paris. 
uh, people are people employed by these national workshops. Then the workshops are closed down. There's a there's a rising in Paris, which he calls uh, a servile war, a sort of class war, which is almost as if a sort of slave war has come to have, has come to France, and he can't cope with that. And then the other thing, finally, that he can't cope with, with is the the advent of Louis Napoleon Bonaparte. I mean, he's actually on a constitutional commission which makes the Constitution of 1848, which says the 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 the, the, the French president will be elected by universal suffrage for a four-year term, and that's what happens. But then, of course, Louis Napoleon, Louis Napoleon then Louis Napoleon then turns around, and has a coup d'état against the regime, uh, topples briefly in prison, and we get democratic despotism in France. Susan, what, <coughs> Susan, uh, what? Uh, Lessons were there for the larger Europe in this book. Well, I think we have to we have to put Tocqueville in context. Just following on from what's been said, that it was very popular, and you know, partly because you know, it was a serious study of democracy, but also partly because Americans people were fascinated by America. So Tocqueville is not the first person to go and visit it. And a lot of British people came across. You had Francis Trollope, you had Harriet Martineau. Um, they were very critical, very, very critical of America. They found nothing to say that was positive about it. And there was an element of, you know, schadenfreude in that, where the British were standing back and saying, so, thought you'd get, you know, rid of us, thought you'd go off on your own. And they were waiting for this American experiment in democracy to fall on its face. But then other people in in Britain, and later the Chartists, I mean, they saw in America this great hope for a new kind of society, a new kind of equality, a new kind of liberty. So that was the lesson that they wanted to take from it. But of course, the relationships within Europe are very different. So, you know, when Tocqueville does come back and he's talking about, you know, Algeria, he's thinking about France in relation to Britain. When he's in America, he's thinking more of America as something 3,000 miles away. And it is this experiment, not perhaps a laboratory, but a and on experiment in democracy that can you know Europe can learn from, but Britain wasn't going to learn from it. We weren't going to get rid of a monarchy just because of that book. Jeremy, finally, what's the chief influence? If we want to pick out one main drift of influence that comes from this book, I think in the, over over the long term, it's the it's the argument about the importance of civil society. Um, you know, the fear the, the f- written in the book is the fear of you just, you'll just have the people. And the state, and you need that. You need that middle ground, and that's that's the life of associations of religion and so on. It's the social. It's the social capital argument. Toffee is often seen as the patron saint of social capital. Thank you very much. Thanks to you, <coughs> Jeremy Jennings, to Susan Mary Grant, and Robert Gilday. Next week, a year before Brexit, in our time, we'll take a pause for a special day of programming on Radio Four on Britain at the Crossroads. We're back in a fortnight with Roman slavery. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. I suppose for me, I, th- I think one of the things that Tocqueville gets a glimpse of and doesn't, because you know he's not there long enough, doesn't grasp, is how it's the speed of growth in America that he sees as being an issue. It's so fast and it's moving west and that is very much happening in the 1830s that you have in the previous decade, a couple of decades, you've had a whole tranche of new states, Mississippi, you know, Illinois, coming in with white suffrage. And I think that uh, he... He's, he, he senses this is important, but I think that is fundamental aspect of, 
of this change in 1830 is, is, is this move west. But he does fear that it's just all happening too quickly. And towards the end of the first volume, you know, he says, what will hold the union together? And he talks about the importance of religion, the importance of association. But fundamentally, I think he thinks it will eventually fall apart because he says this is a voluntary union. And as soon as the people don't want it anymore... You know, it will it will fall apart, and then of course you have that bit at the very very end of the first volume where he actually discusses a nullification crisis, where Jackson sends the troops into Charleston Harbour and basically says to South Carolina, "You will pay this tariff," and that's perhaps not what they were expecting. So Tocqueville discusses that. But what Jackson but does now is sort of say the union is more important than any state. It takes the head union on. liberty, yes. yeah, now and forever. I mean, that was Jackson's idea, yeah. and. Uh, you know, I think a lot of Southerners hadn't perhaps seen that one coming, but it is this—it's the rapidity of the growth of this democracy, mm. you know, compared to how European nations grow, that I think he thinks is going to be a real, a real issue, mm. and I think it was a real issue. But well, that, that was a real issue with the whether whether the states had any sort of autonomy. Totally, yeah. he does talk about that—the balance. And you know, we didn't have time to look at that, but the balance between the federal government and the states, and you know, he he talks about patriotism or love of country and hearing in the state and not in the federal government. This is not mm. something that, you know, federal government's just there to conduct foreign affairs, to set taxes, you know, for diplomacy, but essentially Americans are focused on the state. But, and that's where the North-South divisions come in, because I think that's the most interesting thing for me when I'm teaching Tocqueville is how he very clearly sees in the South, he thinks there's going to be this idea of virtue predicated on slavery, so it's not a very virtuous virtue, but this idea that will allow people to think and read. And Whereas in the North, it is all a hard scrabble for money and a hard scrabble for material success. So he feeds into that kind of myth that dominates 19th century America, that Southerners are aristocratic and refined, Northerners are morally better, but frankly quite greedy and materialistic. Can I just say a word about... Um uh, his later work, The Ancien Regime and the Revolution, because I, I just touched on democratic despotism as it comes to France, uh, uh, with Louis Napoleon, who makes himself Napoleon uh, III and rules rules this very... Uh, Tocqueville sees him as ruling a very sort of flat, equal society through despotism, and liberty disappears, and, and Tocqueville has a complete melts down but on the, on the, at the same time he writes this wonderful book called The Ancien Regime and the Revolution uh, which is not really about the revolution or why, why the revolution happens it's where, how, did we, how did France get into this mess where you know it is now under democratic despotism and he sort of traces back he traces back he traces back institutionally the fact that you know France has this centralised bureaucracy which is very unlike the sort of decentralised system in, in, in America and uh, it's a very divided society, whether you look at individual peasant proprietors or whether you look at the fact that this is the Ancien Regime society may be becoming more... People are becoming richer and there's a sort of fusion between nobles and bourgeoisie, but they're divided by privilege. And then he says that all the, all the, Ancien, all the, all the enlightened thinkers are much more interested in equality than they are in freedom. So he says all these things combine so that when the French Revolution happens, the French Revolution doesn't actually manage to establish liberty and... Um, and 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 we finish up with the first Napoleonic di- dictatorship, and then the second Napoleonic dictatorship. So, in a sense, he, he he demonstrates that in France, all the safeguards, the institutional and the and the kind of cultural safeguards against democracy, have failed. Of course, he dies before 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 the end of the Second Empire, and you could say the Third Republic, you know, which starts in eighteen seventy, you know, does actually get these things more or less right, but it's too late for him. 
Yeah, I mean, if, in terms of what, what we might have brought out more, I, I, I don't think we really emphasised enough that when Toffield talks about democracy, it's not just politics. It's democracy, democracy famous above all else, a social state. It is the absence of, of, of aristocracy, and again, that's that's all part of its newness. Oh. And it's and it's aristocracy. It's aristocracy. This stuff about virtue, the arts. Where, where who, who, who who's embodied virtue? It's the aristocracy. Who's, where, where have the arts been generated through the aristocracy and so on? For the first, and he's a, again, he's an aristocrat. He goes to this society and realises he's the past. He's not. He's not. This is no. There's no place for someone like him in the, in this new society. So I think I think that is that, and, and that's I think a really important dimension of, of the argument, which 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 we we should have emphasised more. I, I'm intrigued by again these these comments which which come at the end of, of volume one about the future of, of, of the union, um, where you know you have this long section on on, on Native Americans, which we were absolutely right about this. He basically says they're finished. I mean, he sees no way back for Native Americans. The slavery issue, I. I would probably take a slightly different line on that. Um, I think his view was, and it, it turned out to be incorrect. His view was, in effect, that slavery would almost die on the vine. That as you know, as, as America went westward, the economy, the slave economy of the South, would become increasingly irrelevant. Um, and over, therefore, over time, he was always consistent in his opposition to slavery. It would die out in that way. What we obviously had no opportunity to talk about, though so we hinted at it, was his views of what subsequently happens in, to America. And, of course, to his great horror, and it is horror, slavery does not die on the vine. Slavery, in fact, you know, the South doesn't give up. And the, the uh, South, in fact, are determined you know, to take... in the fact that you know, 18, 1833 here and the Americans just then to, went to a sort of internal slavery after that, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But, but the South... The South seeks to push slavery westward. I mean, they don't give up, and this is. And he follows this very, very closely. He keeps in contact with a lot of these Americans he met and met, makes some new ones and so on. Continues writing about this, and he becomes by the 1850s. Whereas, whereas in in the 1835, he effectively says the Americans would not be so stupid to have a civil war about this. By the 1850s, the Americans are going to be that stupid, and he's writing to his he's writing to his, his friends in America. Uh, saying things like, all of us who look to America as a country of liberty are now in despair because you, you, you know, this, this great beacon which we look towards is, is clearly not going, it's not, it's not going to deliver. And his final remarks on America in, in, in long private correspondence are very, very pessimistic about America indeed. Yeah. And of course he dies before this, just before the Civil War. Now, I was just going to say, it's difficult to maybe bring this out in an actual yeah. programme, but I yeah. think it's... I think Tocqueville is very relevant today. I mean... Partly because of if you if you link together democracy in America with his reports in Algeria, because I think too often he's become an American product. Americans have mm. taken him. The American Academy has taken Totville to himself, and every historian dips into Totville and I just quote, and I am guilty of that. My writings are peppered with Totville quotes, but I think there is a danger that now when Americans sometimes some of them, I stress some of them, write about Talkville and democracy in America. It's almost as if that is the only country that understand democracy in America, the only one, <coughs> only they would read it. And I think it would be good, I think, for European for Europeans at this juncture to read Talkville. But I think he's, he's very relevant and I think we can look at him from a different angle and not just use him as a source of quotes for this new strange republic across the Atlantic. I think we're going to be interrupted by a strange Englishman. Who'd like tea or coffee? Oh, coffee. Coffee. Black coffee. 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 In Our Time with Melvin Bragg is produced by Simon Tillotson.
Hello there. We hope you enjoyed that podcast, but as Lieutenant Columbo so presciently put it, there's just one more thing. Why not consider listening to The Now Show as part of the Friday night comedy from the BBC? No, I'm sure Columbo never said that. Then he was missing out, wasn't he? It's the topical comedy show hosted by us, Puns and Dennis. All you have to do is find us wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you subscribe. Subscribe.